Hi, everyone. This is Jeff Epstein, and this is my podcast, People Conversations. And today I have a very special guest. Uh, his name is Charles Ortel, and he has been doing quite a lot of research on the Clinton Foundation and has found a number of very questionable things about it. Um, he began a long time ago as uh, in the 2008 crash, putting out a lot of information showing very questionable things happening with GE, uh, basically fraud in, in the range of hundreds of billions of dollars. And he has taken that investigative work and brought it to the Clinton Foundation. And starting next week, which we'll go into, he is going to be releasing a series of posts um, over 40 days, I believe once a day, I'll find out for sure, uh, on the Clinton Foundation and the problems with the Clinton Foundation. So, um, Charles, uh, I really appreciate you, you joining me today, and I really look forward to asking you some questions. Well, thanks so much for having me on, and I'm, all, I'm ready for you. I'll do my best to try to keep up. Wonderful. And actually, I would like to give a little shout-out to the person who brought us together, um, whose name is Kitty Snyder. Uh, she is a Bernie Sanders super volunteer who I met in October at a debate watch party, and we have worked together for a very long time. I'm a Bernie delegate as well. Uh, and we went to the convention together. We worked together uh, all around. Uh, she's really, and she's involved in the Thompson timeline, which is the reason that you uh, encountered her. Um, so I'm very grateful to her. And I actually also wanted to say that not only is she just, you know, working very hard for the campaign for this purpose of the Thompson timeline, she is the visual symbol. If you see pictures of her, which I'll put in the description of this podcast, she is the visual symbol for me for the struggles of the Bernie delegates. Uh, just the way she looks, the way she protested, the dress, the long, long red dress she wore. So I just wanted to acknowledge her. Um, so it's been really nice working with her. Absolutely. She's a wonderful person. Um, so, Charles, uh, you're putting out a series starting next week, I believe on the 6th, September 6th. Is that right? Yeah, I, I started on this actually by chance in uh, around February 2015. Um, I uh, put my, some of my cards on the table in this, this comment. And I, I, you know, I know the Clintons, uh, I mean, from the public eye, I've been following them at length ever since you know, I'll call it 1992 or so, and I deplore them personally for their political and personal behavior. So I, I don't believe that I'm, you know, all that objective about them. But uh, in the past, what I've been focused on in my independent life since 2002 are complex problems that other people don't seem to understand. And, I, you know, I lit on the GE situation by accident in uh, 2015 in February. I, somebody, a number of different people came to me and they said, you know, this Clinton Foundation... We don't really understand what it is they do. We can't figure out their work, but it sounds good. And so that's when I started on this. And I wrote a few articles. Uh, I, I know it may not be a particularly popular publication amongst your group, but I wrote a few articles uh, for Breitbart, and one that got a tremendous amount of, well, a large number of Facebook shares, 81,000 Facebook shares. I wrote March 16, 2015, with so many red flags. Why isn't the IRS auditing the Clinton Foundation? Okay. And after that, I realized it was too complex a matter for the standard media output. You know, you've got to have a, a typical story has to be 1,250 words or less. You know, the ones that get high traffic are 250 to 500. This is an analysis that really requires hundreds of pages. And as such, I began the process in April 2015 
you know, writing the first, what I called the first foundation report. Uh, and I entitled it False Philanthropy, question mark. And it's up there on my website, www.charlesortel.com. And therein, after followed a number of other reports, and I kept doing it and doing it. And the process then was very similar to what happened with GE. When I started on GE, I myself thought I might be crazy. I hadn't really worked for anybody for five years. I was taking care of my children. I, I'm divorced, and I got custody of my two wonderful kids. And I actually didn't care about business or anything for a number of years, and then turned my attention to GE and because I thought it was just didn't make sense. And then I realized that it was actually it looked to me like a fraud. And it took me about two years to go around the world. I have fortunately a lot of friends around the world, and and you know bounce these ideas off them and. Initially, people say, "No, no, 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 you're wrong." Then they, you know, they suspend their, their, you know, they, they stop suspending their natural disbelief and they look at the underlying facts. And that's, I think, where we are now with with the Clinton Foundation. I mean, I reached the conclusions that are going to be laid out in these 40 reports before, in fact, May of this year, when I, when I laid out the index of these reports. Then. But back in May, still the general public, the editorial boards, the media around the world wasn't yet in a position to really absorb the enormity of this. Because this is not simply a fraud, which it is. It's a massive fraud, and it's a fraud which people in both parties inside this country and in numerous countries around the world have either willingly or unwillingly overlooked for almost 20 years. So so there's a unifying theme to me. And, uh, and and to my concerns about GE and the Clinton Foundation. And let me just take, if I may, a quick second and explain it. I come out of a family going back generations that has made money identifying services and goods that the public should want to buy and has then made a business of, you know, very many different businesses over, over generations um, providing those goods and services. And, you know, that's the old-fashioned way in which, you know, if you run a business responsibly to your community, to your employees, to your customers, to your bankers, etc., you know, it may not be a perfect way of living your life, but it's a good way of living your life, and you can do well, as, uh, you know, I think is, the, is proven in my case. And, you know, that's, but it's hard work. You know, you don't just fall off a, a turnip truck and become a millionaire. You do hard work, generally speaking. On the other hand, there's another approach, and that approach is to corrupt the business, the body politic, which is easily done. Politicians around the world don't make officially a lot of money. Regulators don't make a lot of money. On the other hand, corporations, particularly now in the global world where, you know, we have a truly interconnected for the moment global opportunity so that if you have a business, you set it up in South Dakota, it can serve the world. You set it up in Bangladesh, it can serve the world. So you have this monumental opportunity to make money. You have a regulatory apparatus that is easily captured. And in the case of a GE or in the case of a Clinton Foundation, you know, you could basically monetize government service for the benefit of a connected group of of cronies on the right, the left, the center, et cetera. And I find that disgusting. Now, you know, I am not, I might be a 60-year-old naive person, but I, you know, I wasn't born yesterday. I was born 60 years ago. And, you know, to me, there's a better way of doing this. And, you know, we need to make an example out of this, in, in particular the Clinton case. What the Clintons have done, they figured out, and I think, you know, the Obamas might be figuring this out now, that when you're sitting in the White House 
for two terms, following a long career in government, quote, service, you're living pretty high in the hog. I mean, it's it's expensive to, to rent private jets and then private security and live in mansions and have fancy dinners and stay in presidential suites and stuff like that. And the people who get to the highest echelons in all the governments around the world quickly find, as they're on their way out the door, holy smokes, how am I going to support my family in the lifestyle to which we've become accustomed? What better way than operating in corrupt foundations? And, you know, where you, you assert that you're doing good works, but you gain the foundation, so there are no trustees who really stand up to you. There's no accounting firm to check anything. Your donors, instead of parting with after-tax expensive money, give you pre-tax money, so they're very happy to give you money. There's no restriction on uh, foreign governments contributing to a foundation, whereas there is a strict bar on foreign governments contributing to, to political campaigns. So it's a brilliant thing. And it can be replicated, as Tony Blair has done in the U.K. and others have done around the world. And I think Bill has been, with his cronies, going around the world and creating this, you know, this fantastic charity fraud crime network. And it, needs, and it is in the process of being exposed. And we will, in these reports, be revealing billions and billions of dollars of corrupt practices. And so why hasn't this taken hold? Is it just simply that it's just too big to fail? I mean, is it, is it just, if, it, if your evidence is correct, and I have no reason to doubt it, then why has justice not been served? Why, well, I'll, why I'll, is it, or why are people even so afraid of even going to investigate it? And the feeling is, is that it's just such an interconnected network around the world that the consequences would, you know, be... Unheard of. Well, it's a good question. So, if you get to, if you know your history, in New York here, we had Tammany Hall, you know, decades ago. This is Tammany Hall on steroids. This is not just confined to New York, it's a global fraud, and it affects inside this country people in both parties. The Bush wing of the Republican Party and the Clinton wing of the Democratic Party have been feasting on this for decades. You know, President Obama. I hope doesn't believe that he's going to get away with this, but he's sure making noises about raising a ton of money for his foundation. And when I look through the paperwork on that foundation, it doesn't seem cricket to me. So, um, you know, inside our country, you have people in both parties. I refer to it as the uniparty. You know, there's not really a Democratic Party and a Republican Party. There's the uniparty. That's why they're very happy to do these, you know, stimulus bills and other bills where nobody checks anything. And instead, our children and grandchildren are on the hook for trillions of dollars. I mean, so that's the way it operates here. And around the world, you know, people look at the U.S. and they say, well, if the biggest economy in the world is going to behave like this, Katie, bar the door. We can do the same thing. So I think one of the reasons, I asked that question at the very beginning, one of the reasons is that it's extremely easy to game the system. Now, I'm not a revolutionary, but I'm a student in history. And if you go back to the Russian Revolution and other revolutions, people will explain to you that it's a very small number of people can, you know, can accomplish a revolution. So similarly, a small number of people can gain the system. What do you need in the U.S.? You need to insert your people into the Department of Justice and to the IRS. A small number of people, you know, and, so, and presto changer, you've got enormous power. Insert them into the regulatory apparatus, the Federal Election Commission, the, the FDA, um, the FTC, uh, into judges, and a very small number of people can, can game the system in one country, uh, in our country. 
Then you go to, you know, a foreign country like, you know, Russia, for example, or, you know, strongman dictatorship places, and there you're playing by, not only are you going to, you know, use the hard elbow tactics that, you know, we can use here in this country, but over there you're going to use intimidation and brutal force. So, you know, it's, it's not actually all that difficult to game the system. Then when you look at this, you know, I think the position, of, I know as I'll be explaining, you know, the Bush family is implicated in this. In, in the um, Clinton-Bush, Bush-Clinton-Katrina fund in 2005 is a fraud. The Clinton-Bush-Haiti fund in 2010 forward is a fraud. The Gulf Coast Recovery Fund in 2008, fraud, all of which involve the Bush family. So one approach that our, you know, vaunted politicians on both sides of the aisle take when they get to find a problem is they say, well, look, this problem affects both parties. We don't really want to expose it. And they try to sweep it under the rug. Then you think about the media. I mean, the work you're doing, you know, you mentioned off air that you've made some good progress already building an audience. Mainstream media is dependent upon government for many reasons. You know, mainstream media empires that own, you know, uh, regular network channels have to worry about government oversight. They have to, you know, uh, political campaigns are a big source of advertising revenue. They can't uh, alienate the big corporate donors. So the mainstream organs, um, you know, they they can easily get captured. Uh, you saw in your own party. I mean, here I, I have in my in my family, you know, in the 19th century, a number of different family members ran for office as Democrats. But I, you know, I, I'm not a Democrat. Yet I watched what happened to Bernie with disgust. I mean, that you you didn't. Well, you know, why? If on the left we care about climate change, why do we waste all the carbon? involved in all these primaries if it was just going to be a foregone conclusion. Why do we bother with a vote? Why don't we just anoint her? <laughs> you know, so you can capture a party. You can capture a media complex. You can capture a corporation. You can capture a country with a very small number of people, and that's what's happened. And Tim Canova, you know, uh, yesterday Tim Canova lost to Deborah Wasserman Schultz in uh, Florida in the primaries, and he did not concede to her. He said... Uh, I can see that she is a corporate, I don't think the word was shill, but something to that effect. And it, it was just, I was just making me think that his conceding to her is, is, would be validating the corrupt system. You know, the, the, it's just overwhelming. The corruption in the election system, just in the election system, uh, it is. is, yeah, it's overwhelming. Absolutely. And, and so that's, that's, I think, really the answer. So when you think about, you know, a standard pattern in our regulatory system, you know, in the case of GE, uh, you know, I, I pushed very hard at various experts. And, you know, it turns out that our Securities and Exchange Commission, which is the primary regulator of publicly traded companies, is very thinly staffed. And it turns out that people are not that well paid. And it turns out that, you know, you can work in the SEC for a short time. But, you know, not it's not poverty wages, but it's not great. And then you can go become an, a partner at a law firm and make millions of dollars a year for the rest of your life. So, you know, it's a very natural thing to start at the SEC and then graduate into private practice. And, you know, if you're going to, if, if your bread is going to be buttered by corporate interests, are you really going to go hard against them at the SEC? And, of course, the answer is no. Right. And, you know, a similar thing, I think, happens in the charity regulatory system. Same idea. The IRS, same idea. 
So, um, you know, th- th- this is very distressing. And, you know, on, on the charity side of life, I'm, I'm not also I'm just probably laying it all out here in a way I couldn't necessarily, but I'm not particularly a fan of any organized religion. Yet I do feel that uh, yeah, the charity, true charity, and by that I mean giving, not giving with strings attached, um, is a wonderful thing. And, you know, where I would have a disagreement perhaps with some elements on the left is, you know, I've traveled to 65 countries. This country is truly exceptional. It's very special. It has a flawed history. But one of the things that makes it special is the gigantic scale and, and scope and undertakings of the many charities, the 1.2 million charities that operate inside this country or organize inside this country and operate around the world. That's truly special. You know, people go out, and, and it's not just the money. It's easy to write a check or put money into a, you know, a tin cup. It's a lot tougher to give of your time to truly care about something, to take a, you know, see a wrong and write it and not ask for something back. Yeah, and, and you know, a lot of people, and actually the charity world tends to lean to the left. A lot of people respect these rules. So, you know, and, and, and do wonderful things. You know, I may disagree with, with some of their aims, but, uh, you know, these are people who, in the main, you know, may or may not make any money off the charity at all. You know, they may just volunteer their time. Um, you know, they roll up their sleeves. They, when they could be out partying or having fun, instead they're, you know, doing tough things and, and, you know, confronting tough challenges in a way that our government officials, most of them are overpaid, frankly, don't do. That's wonderful I, stuff. I'd like to ask you, I mean, you, th- this has been going on for a while. Uh, I've, I had not been involved in politics at all before Bernie Sanders, but who I discovered in late August. And he really educated, you know, a lot of people, regardless if you like his platform or not. Um, I think it is reasonable to say that he educated a lot of people to these corruption issues. Um, and it almost feels like it, he's opened the eyes of a lot of people. And what's scary about it is that we have the chance to do something, you know, we're up against the giant, but we have the chance to finally do something with the education that he's given us. But you brought up Obama before, and what really scares me about Obama, or, or which is what really scares me, period, is the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Because this, this citizen's media... Uh, like like I did and other Bernie delegates did, other delegates did for the convention of live streaming on Facebook, of course, depending on a corporate entity. But still, we got the information out there that has been very difficult to get out. And the TPP would be something that would stop that flow of information. And, you know, now we finally had that, that knowledge, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering if there have been movements like that has been started by Bernie Sanders of this sort of opening the eyes of to what is really going on out there with Clinton Foundation and with election fraud and just just all of these things. Do you see that? Do you see what's going on now with Bernie Sanders? Uh, has this happened before? Is this sort of unique? What's going on? Well, you'll be surprised at this answer, and and I, and I hope you won't be offended. It's actually very similar. Uh, obviously from a dif- dif- different political perspective to what happened with Reagan and, and the Reagan Revolution. I mean, if you go back, uh, I'm going to guess that in 1980 you might have been rather rather young as a guess. Uh, <laughs> but, I was um, nine years old. 
you know, okay. <laughs> you know, so you probably weren't caring very much about politics. I definitely uh, you know, I was over Reagan, I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> well, even I, you know, when I was in time, I was 24 in 1980, and, and I remember in college in 76 saying, and I was involved in the Yale Political Union, um, which was, you know, a reasonably active thing to do, uh, saying that if Ronald Reagan were the Republican nominee, I'd move to Canada. You know, and, and I was chairman of the Conservative Party, which wasn't the hard right Conservative Party; it was the centrist party. But um, you know, and and so Reagan was viewed with alarm, even by people on the right. And then when he got in there, you know, he really opened a lot of people's eyes. And actually, uh, my birthday is January 11th, and his um, farewell speech was January 11th, 1989. And, he, you know, he was a great communicator. One of the things he said, which I think, you know, could be a motto, frankly, for what you're doing, it is a motto for what I'm doing, all great change begins around the dining table with family and friends talking about issues. From you the know, bottom like of the of the Yeah, from the bottom of it. That's where great change begins. That's where the Reagan revolution began. That's where the Bernie thing began. And I would submit to you, that's where what, you know, the common ground that I think you and I might well have, that's, that's where the, you know, the geopolitical plates are, are, are shifting. And the, and the political plates inside this country, the tectonic plates, they're shifting in strange ways. You know, 10 years ago, we probably wouldn't have had this conversation. You know, it, was, it would have been, you know, less likely that somebody like me and somebody like you might find common ground. But, you know, on charity ground, on charity fraud, I don't think there's an, a person with you know, sane in any country who believes that charity fraud is something we should tolerate. I, I don't think, think, it's, even, I think know, it's even more fundamental than that. I think it's just true. You know, we, we yeah. may disagree on just our points of view and on, on the platform. And, um, you know, I, I really am into Bernie Sanders' platform. I know you would, are, you know, more Republican. I'm guessing that that's, that's, that's the case. Um, and it, But it doesn't matter. It's just about... The truth. It's just about exposing the truth. And it's not that I think Clinton is guilty. And I actually, actually, I see this in a number of places and, I, and with you as well as you're, you draw the conclusion. And I, you know, respectfully, I, I disagree with drawing the conclusion. I think your evidence speaks for itself. Um, but, you know, my, my, my friends and I were protesting the Edison Research who did the polling for uh, the major media organizations and then stopped the polling in the last few primaries, Democratic primaries, and they refuse to release the raw data. And my and friends of mine are saying, you know, it will prove election fraud, it will prove election fraud, and we can't know that. We can't know that. We just want the truth. Do I personally think that it's significantly possible that there was election fraud? Yes, I do. But we can't know for sure, but what we want is the truth. And that's what I think that's that you're right. doing, and that's why I think that we can communicate successfully and enjoy enjoy this communication because we're just at the same, we have the same goal. We have the same goal. Right. Well, you know, another area where I think there's common ground is as much as I think uh, this country and other prosperous countries face uh, existential threats around the world, I think it is absolutely completely wrong for any state to spy on its own citizens. I think that's ridiculous. And, and you know, to erect this gigantic um, you know, security state with that big, big complex area that we know about out in Nevada, I think. You know, so they can listen to this conversation and get our metadata, metadata and mine all this kind of stuff is absurd. 
you know, because there's it, it, the government is on sort of many levels, but like a very practical one is this is a government that can't even keep track of blackberries computers on, on foreign trips. You know, how are they going to keep track of all this confidential, you know, information that's supposedly so important? How are they going to make sure that that isn't monetized? So, you know, that's that's another area where I guess you and I might agree that, you know, we don't need this. This is absurd. You know, we yeah. if we have enemies and they need to be fought, well, let's have a national debate about it. And if it's so important to have a, a real fight, let's have a war. Let's right. really ask, you know, if it's, but let's not, you know, have this sort of undeclared war and gigantic apparatus feeding all these corporate interests, you know, in a way that no one can ever really know what's going on. That's ridiculous. Now, that's so, coming at it from the right. Right. <laughs> okay. right. So, I mean, so you're releasing these reports starting on the next 40, I believe it's 40 days, 40 reports. And That's the plan. And, yes, the truth needs to just get out there, and you have to release the truth no matter what happens, and that's that's what you're doing, but... It's hard. To, I gotta say, it's it's hard for me, you know. Not again. Not a, I, I can't definitively say that the foundation is fraudulent. I'm not arguing against or for your information. I just personally can't officially, definitively say that. But your information, it would be easy to conclude that that's the case. I mean, you've been extremely thorough. And my question is: is there's a two-tier justice system in this country? So what is, aside from just the, the need to get the truth out, what is the realistic probability that anything is going to change, that the truth will truly get out, and if justice needs to be served, that it will actually be served? Well, in, in this case, you know, a number of things have happened recently that give me encouragement. You know, sadly, and I don't know the, the fa- whether the facts alleged in the indictment of Green Brown, the African-American representative in Florida who's been indicted and now faces 357 years in prison for an $800,000 alleged charity fraud. You know, that happened a number of weeks ago. And she's running for office right now. And, it, you know, they, they, they changed, split up her district and, you know, gave her a new district. So she has to, uh, to she's been in Congress since 1993. She is a Hillary delegate, superdelegate. She is African-American. She's the same age as Hillary. And Obama's Justice Department has allowed the U.S. attorneys in that part of Florida to indict this this person and have, have laid over her a 357-year potential jail term. Now, I ask you, she's a Democrat. I ask you, you know, if, if you're going to do that to, to a, you know, an African-American superdelegate for Hillary, go after her for $800,000 of alleged charity fraud, why are you going to let the Clintons get away with a minimum $2 billion charity fraud. Clinton goes for almost 20 years, whereas for Corinne Brown, it's around five. Now, one very important point that maybe your your listeners need to understand, and I don't know if that you know about this yet, in, in corporate fraud, a crucial element in corporate fraud is what's called, it's S-C-I-E-N-T-E-R is the legal term, and it means knowledge, knowledge and intent to cause harm. In charity fraud, you don't have to prove that element. It's, you know, most state charity fraud statutes remove that requirement. So New York State, a key state for this matter, has removed that requirement explicitly. So for charity fraud, all you have to prove is that the, the filings submitted into the public domain are false and materially misleading. That is crystal clear. And then you have to prove 
that the uh, charity has solicited funds. Not that it raised money, but that it solicited funds. And if you can prove those two elements, you have criminal charity fraud. This is important because the reason that Hillary Clinton was not indicted for her email was explicitly because of intent. And if I'm understanding you, that that need for intent doesn't fall into place under the Clinton under Charitable Works. Right. Now, uh, you're, you're, you're right and you're wrong. <laughs> you're right that Comey got up there and said uh, he couldn't find any intent. But the statute for the offenses that she was, you know, that, that were, uh, 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 you know, that were basically those which people were considering that she might have violated, those statutes do not require intent either. So there's a real question, you know, the experts I talked to are saying, you know, why was Comey coming out with this canard that, you know, he needed to find intent? You don't have to find intent for that. Well, that is but, the but intent, the, though. I, I know, that's why I'm saying you're right and you're wrong. So yeah, okay. you're, you're okay. right. He said you're right. He said it, but he was wrong to to claim as he did that he needed to find that intent. I, I've spoken to numerous lawyers who, who explained to me that's not true, and I've read actually, the statute myself. It actually seemed that Comey was it was partially couldn't find intent, and partially no prosecutor, no reasonable prosecutor would take this. Meaning, well, yeah, we have there's a case here, but it's not worth taking. Right, but you see, you know, and and there I'm not a lawyer, but, you know, you've had many other admittedly partisan prosecutors, you know, Andy McCarthy, Rudy Giuliani, Republicans, stand up and say, I'll take this case in a heartbeat. But, so going back to the charity fraud element, you know, last year I was, I reached out to Peter Schweitzer, who wrote Clinton Cash, and I, I explained to him that, you know, while I thought what he was doing was interesting and it's a useful exercise, I, I explained to him that, look, you know, public corruption cases, nobody, even, you know, nobody dastardly enough, daring enough to hold a high office and sell it for personal gain is going to write memos saying, you know, okay, I gave, you know, Jeff this benefit because Jeff gave me $10 million. You know, here's the check, cash check, and here's the benefit he got written up in Exhibit A. Nobody's going to do that. So to try to find evidence of that, I told Schweitzer last year, would be very, very difficult. But on the other hand, charity fraud is interesting because when the IRS, which would be one crucial element in this, but state taxing authorities and foreign taxing authorities can do the same thing, when these taxing authorities decide to make an issue of charity fraud, under our law, the burden of proof shifts. In other words, you don't have the government doesn't have to prove uh, beyond a reasonable doubt the existence of the crime. The charity has to come forward and say, I didn't commit the crime, and here's why. Okay. And you, the charity has to retain evidence. So if the charity has destroyed evidence, which I suspect this charity has done, they're done. They're finished. And, I mean, yes, again, to, uh, not to doubt anything you're saying, not to doubt any of your evidence, but given the enormity of evidence on the Thompson timeline for the email that why wasn't there justice there if, if, in fact, all that stuff is true? And, you know, it's just, it is hard. It's just really hard to feel that there's much justice at all. So it's, it's well, nice to hear you say that, that, you know, if there is fraud there, then that it would be very easy to prosecute. But it, I, I really look forward to seeing that kind of justice happen. 
because in my in my lifetime I really don't I don't recall that. So well, I think we need it too for your benefit, for my benefit, for your colleagues, my colleagues, and my children, and when they have grandchildren, if they do, you know, future generations as well. I, I wholeheartedly agree. One answer, potential answer to your question is that with the email scandal as a guest, and you know, I don't, I'm not talking to the FBI. I would if they asked me, but I'm not because um, they haven't approached me. Um, as a guest, I would say that um, any evidence involved in that case likely uh, is embarrassing. You know, if you know, it could could well be. Are talking about the email the case now? Yeah, I mean, it, it strikes me as, as highly likely that numerous foreign governments have hacked into Hillary's personal stuff, the Clinton family's personal stuff, the Clinton Foundation stuff, and who knows what they found? Who knows what embarrassing secrets are in there? You know, who knows, for example, on the, on the issue of, take, for example, you know, Bugaboo, and the issue of Benghazi, who knows really what was happening there? I mean, what was Sid Blumenthal doing? He was, Obama said, as people said, Sid Blumenthal cannot work in the State Department. Well, what was he really doing for the Clinton Foundation? How was he getting access to classified information? What deals was he concocting? Is it possible that Sid Blumenthal and people close to the Clintons were actually arranging for arms to get to the Libyan rebels uh, in violation of numerous, you know, United States, was in violation of the will of Congress, in violation of the will of the people, and, you know, that whole chain of evidence, and emails and others, could be very embarrassing, not simply uh, to the Clintons, but also to the Obama administration and probably also to Republicans. So, you know, it's quite, quite possible that, you know, the powers that be looked at this mess and said, though we would like, in normal circumstances, you know, take this to a trial, which would be public, you know, and then introduce this stuff into the into evidence, which again would would likely be public. We can't do it, right. you know. And so, a decision of what I, I again referred to as the Uniparty was: let's just you know, sweep it under the rug. Yeah, Uniparty. The way that I say it is: we have you can have your one, you can have your uh, blue flavored one percent, or one flavored or red flavored one percent. <laughs> it's really all right. the same stuff, right? So, so. How does this series of 40, you know, how do you see this going? Uh, are you working with other people, or is this all going on your website? Are, is this uh, involved in the Thompson timeline at all? Well, yeah, I'm going to put it up as a first start uh, on on my website, and, you know, it's for free, so people can do with it as they wish. It will be in a PDF file. I don't want people, you know, manipulating it and you know, changing my analysis or something like that. But, um, and... Uh, because I've done this before with GE and others, uh, you know, I took the view that what I should do is edu- educate as many journalists, investigative journalists, as I could, so that they could do, you know, they could look at these 40 exhibits and write stories the way they're going to write them. What I do is I source everything, I footnote everything, I give people a chance to, you know, to check my work. I obviously check my own work and have other people check my work with me. But the goal here is is to is to create, you know, real action that people look at this and then realize that the magnitude of this crime and say we're not going to stand for this, and to go to their rep- elected representatives, to go to their attorneys general in the different states, to go around the world to different countries and say, listen, you know, the government of Australia has given close to 100 million U.S. dollars to the Clinton Foundation. Where did it go? 
why was so much money given to these people to, to foundations that weren't legally authorized in Australia or anywhere else? Same in Norway. You know, this organization in Switzerland, Unitate, $650 million. You know, how come so much money went to the Clinton Foundation to fight HIV-AIDS when it wasn't authorized to fight HIV-AIDS, where there's no real evidence that they did much good with all this money, that they may indeed have done tremendous harm buying drugs that they didn't check properly and distributing them to parts of the world where there's no infrastructure so that adulterated medicines might have gone around the world. You know, why did this happen? And who's responsible? And let's get to the bottom of it. Um, okay. I have a question about sourcing. So you have sources. A lot of it obviously must be links to articles and to resources on other websites. Um, and is there any precautions that you take or concerns that you have regarding those external sources disappearing or changing? Well, uh, so well, the sources that I rely upon are, are primary evidence. And so if you're a public charity, if you're soliciting from the public, which is what a public charity is, then uh, you have to keep all of your filings current, and they must be true and accurate. A public charity, you know, there are many rules, but a simple one is that a public charity may not engage, quote, in any illegal activity of any kind. So... Um, so you have to fill your forms out properly. It's those forms that are filled by the Clinton Foundation. It's forms that are filled by donors, which also must be true and accurate. It's uh, reports by government donors, which must be true and accurate under the foreign government various laws. Those are the primary resources that I concentrate upon. I also, you, you know, you're so linking to the web. I'm sorry. Go yeah. Go yeah. Yeah. So, so I give people a chance to look at all those resources, and then. The secondary resources that are interesting, and we almost all, including my own, remember that no secondary resource is a, you know, is a, a, um, a perfect prism. You know, all secondary resources do reflect in one way or another the inherent biases of the author. So you got to look at any secondary source and say, well, you know, let's check everything. But oftentimes secondary resources help you understand a topic more readily than if you had to spend, you know, just come to the conclusion looking at evidence by yourself. So I re rely most on primary sources. I look also at secondary sources. And everything that I feel is that, that somebody ought to have a, a, a route into understanding for themselves, I put a footnote in, and an explanatory footnote. And so might any of those be changed? The primary resources, um, no. I mean, it, 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 it's possible they could be amended later, but you would have to explain when you did that why you amended it, and so, you know, I'll write it as of a certain date, and if things are amended after I write it, there's nothing much I can do about that. But um, so you're pointing to, you're pointing to, for example, you're pointing to resources on the Clinton Foundation website, I would presume, and if that's the case, well, you, have no, you have no concerns of, like, a document disappearing that is critical to your analysis or anything of that sort? Well, I, I, no, no, because you see, actually, uh, as you'll see in the report, um, one of the key issues is that the Clinton website is already gained. You know, the Clinton website does not contain all of the evidence, all of the crucial evidence that a potential donor or regulator ought to know about concerning the Clinton Foundation. That information you will find on state and foreign regulators' websites, which the Clinton Foundation cannot easily gain. But you're right. The Clinton Foundation has been trying to take down incriminating evidence they already, they already published um, 
I have I have what I need, um, and I'm not particularly worried at this point uh, about them taking stuff down that I need because I already have it. Okay. But um, you know, you make a fair point that on their own website, they could well make a decision to um, you know to try to take down stuff that doesn't help their case. To give you a case in point, Bill Clinton wrote a book. September 2007, called Giving. It is an indictment. You could take that, I will be taking that book, which is in the public domain, and using it to indict him. In first person, he declares crime after crime after crime in that book, which was published, for which he was paid $6.3 million. It's self-reporting. Incriminating. He's incriminating himself in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was written, you see, what what... What happens is when you get involved in a charity and you don't bother to know the rules that do apply to all charities, you could commit charity fraud. And that's why if you if people I know, I'm a trustee of one charity. I was a trustee of a different one. I'm well advised by lawyers, and they explain to me, you know, these are the rules, and they're different. It's not like running a company. Trust, you know, in a company, directors can hide behind what's called the business judgment rule. And, and, you know, you're, you're a director. You're not running the business. In a, in a case of a charity, you are responsible for that charity as a trustee. You can't say that, you know, the accountants did it or, or the management screwed up. You, the trustees, stand in the shoes of government. The attorney general of your state has allowed you to operate this nonprofit, and the IRS has given you a valuable federal tax exemption. And if you filled the forms out properly in the various states where you solicit, those states have allowed you to get valuable state exemptions, and you are responsible as a trustee. You owe a duty of care to making sure that the foundation is done properly. You own a duty of obedience to all the laws. You cannot violate any law in the charity, and you have a, a, a duty of loyalty, which means that if there's a conflict between your personal self-interest and the aims of the charity or what you know the, the worth of the charity, you have to put the interest of the charity above your own. And it's, these rules are crystal clear. <laughs> it's not like ambiguous, oh, you know, it's buried in thousands of pages. No, it's crystal clear. So is the fact that the documents, that the, that the Clinton Foundation website has been gamed, as you said, is that a crime within itself or a it serious is. concern within itself? And I brought this up, number one, just because I'm, I'm – a former computer person, and number two sure. is that I've heard recently, I believe it was Jimmy Carter, Charity Watch, I might be mixing up a couple of things, said that the Clinton Foundation is simply unrateable because they're so opaque. All right, now, so there's, there, it's funny, I was just on a call right before this one uh, with people looking at Charity Watch and Charity Navigator. So the, the oldest game in the book, one of the oldest questions is who regulates the regulator? And Charity Watch and Charity Navigator are both very small enterprises. I just looked at the numbers. Charity Navigator had total revenues in its most recent fiscal year, which ended November 30th, 2014, of 1.5 million or approximately, a little bit less than that. It's a small entity. It supposedly rated, evaluated over 8,000 charities. Very unlikely. Charity Watch is even smaller. That has less than 500,000 in revenues. These organizations are not equipped to evaluate the Clinton Foundation. In 2014, Charity Navigator spent no money, none, not one penny on legal expenses. 
How could they possibly understand the international laws that apply to the Clinton Foundation? No way. They didn't spend a single, spend one penny on information technology. They have only 15 people. How can you rate 8,000 charities with no IT budget? You know, they spent 20,000 in total on accounting for their whole does organization. That relate to, does, does that relate to charity watches saying that they're unrateable? Well, yeah, it could. I mean, Charity Watch is even smaller, and Charity Watch is highly suspect when I've looked more carefully at them because they, they Charity Watch, actually, I thought was the one that rated uh, rated them uh, A or something like that. The only one until today that had rated them positively. And then I looked them up, and it's a very small firm that where the CEO derives an overwhelming majority of the compensation and has a limited number of employees, and its own books and records aren't right. So why would I ever care what Charity Watch has to say? And on that topic, another point is it doesn't matter what the rating agencies say. You know, you can't go to the IRS when the IRS audits a charity and say, well, the reason I gave money to this fraudulent charity is it got an A, and get off. This is all the about 2008. This is all related to 2008. The ratings agencies are so corrupted. And GE, you know, GE rated was rated AAA by both rating agencies just as it blew up. Right. You know, and so it was one of the only companies rated AAA when it blew up. You know, it, it, years ago, many companies were rated AAA, but anyway. So a rating age, a rating is, you know, we talked about gaming the system. That's the way the system gets gamed. And, you know, still, sadly, you know, what, what, what I found in the media is that the people who spend a lot of time in media typically are very good with English writing, analysis, but hopeless when it comes to numbers. They don't have the kind of instinctual understanding of numbers and familiarity and comfort with numerical analysis that is crucial to understanding a GE or a charity like the Clinton Foundation. And so they just kind of settle for approximations and settle for work that other people have done without being all that curious. And that's part of the problem. So the IRS understands that, and they say that it is the duty of the trustees to make sure when they say they're giving money to a charity that that charity has, in fact, been operated and organized and operated lawfully. You have to do your own due diligence. You can't say, well, I, I, it has an A on Charity Watch, so that's why I gave it 10 million bucks. You can't do that. And that's, what, that's related to what you were saying before, where it is on, the onus is on the, the charity itself to prove that it is doing legal things, not as opposed to the courts having to prove the opposite. Right. right. Because, you know, if you think about it, this is, you know, unfortunately in my life, I've, I've encountered a number of fraudsters. And when you hear the word fraud, you say to yourself, oh, a crook. You know, you, you have an image of Tony Soprano or something like that, right? Uh, or you know, some gangster. In, in reality, fraudsters, they have no moral compass, right? But they tend to be brilliant. And they're very smart people. And th th what gets, you know, the jollies of fraudsters is to pull off the ever bigger fraud, right? So they're, they're tough people to catch. They don't walk in and say, you know, I'm going to commit a fraud. They come in with a great big story. If it sounds too good to be true, chances are it's fraud. You know, if it sounds, does it sound at all suspicious that Bill Clinton, a man who, while president, obstructed the uh, provision of generic drugs in South Africa to benefit big pharma companies, does it sound at all suspicious that that same man might be leading a charge 
to help generic, in theory, HIV-AIDS companies um, distribute these drugs around the world using a staff that, you know, is not laden with people with great records operating complex organizations internationally. Does that sound at all suspicious? Of course, the answer is... The answer is... Yeah. So, the, I mean, the Clintons are all about hiding things. And, you know, regardless of whether they have done the illegal things or not, it seems pretty clear to me that they're not really interested in being very open. I mean, uh, Hillary Clinton hasn't done press conferences in almost a year now. Uh, the Clinton Foundation website is being gamed. It's, there's, there is, and even, even a lot of the communication with Hillary Clinton is so rigidly scripted and she's never just by herself. Uh, you know, it's, it's very, there's a huge machine behind her. And it just gives me the impression that they're, they're just not as open as they could be. And just that concept, just that very simple concept of not, of oh. being afraid to, to be very open with your truth. That just, that, fun, that concept, I just have a fundamental problem with. And that's what's oh, so appealing to me about Bernie Sanders is he's so open about his truth. You may not like it, but, you know, you don't feel like he's hiding, you know, nearly as much as any politician. Right. I mean, I, the, the issue with the Clintons, you know, and I think the issue really, I mean, it's a simplistic comment, but I'll make it anyway. If we're to think back to, say, 1998-99, when the latest tech revolutions, you know, really flowered, um, what's going on here is that in the private sector anyway, Big organizations are being disrupted. I mean, if General Motors, which in 1952 had something like a 90% world market share of, of the vehicle production industry, if they can go bankrupt, right, and if company after big company can go bankrupt, you know, by these upstarts, be it Google, Facebook, you name whatever they are, um, why do we need a government that is so big you know, if the U.S. government alone, including states and localities, you add up their spending, it would be either the second or third largest economy in the world based on the spending. Why is the government the only place that can't be disrupted? Why is it that so many valuable companies like Google, for example, right, categorizing the world's information, putting it out there for free for everybody? You know, we're, we're a, 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 in this modern moment, we have a thirst. For information, I couldn't do the Clinton Foundation analysis without Google, right? That's one of the key things. I didn't have to pay a penny for it other than, I suppose, the electricity to operate the computers and for the computer but and software. But, you know, uh, this is just fantastic stuff. So in the political realm, whenever you see a, you know, smart politicians, you know, who, who want to tell you what they're going to do for you but hide what they've done for you in the past, obscure everything in their records, their filings, their tax returns, etc., you should be very suspicious. I mean, we're not talking in Bill and Hillary Clinton, we're not talking in Chelsea, we're not talking about uneducated rubes. You know, we're talking about a Rhodes Scholar, we're talking about Yale Law School graduates, we're talking about, you know, in Chelsea, somebody with a PhD and two other degrees. These are smart people that if they wanted to lay the truth out in a grant in the granular fashion that we all deserve to see on the Clinton Foundation, they would have done it. But what, you know, go on their website, you try to find the audits, the financial audits, for 1997 to 2004. They're not on their website. They're not on their website by design. I found them. 
<laughs> all but one year. Oh, sorry, all but a couple of years. And, you know, the ones that I found state flatly that the audits are prepared using principles, accounting principles, that are not permitted in the United States of America. So, therefore, they're non-compliant audits. So they hit them. You want to find out about the merger of the Clinton Foundation into this HIV AIDS entity that occurred on December 31st, 2005? Not on the website. I found that one, too. When you read it, you see that the merger couldn't have legally happened. Anything that's important, you know, to get the kind of view that I have is not on their website. Portions of their audit are obscured on their website, later audits. You find them elsewhere, and they're incriminating. And that's a consistent pattern. So, how, how, I mean, how do you want, how much of this, I mean, this is you know, sort of a mission for you. Is this, how much of this is, you know, bringing down the Clintons and how much of this is true? Well, they're, they're obviously mixed. You know, I mean, my, my interest uh, going forward here, I mean, you don't spend as much time as I spend, you know, uh, I've worked on this, you know, really 24-7, some exceptions, but in most days of the week, a lot of hours of the day, since February of 2015, you don't do that for the heck of it. <laughs> and the, the thing that I, that I want to do next year after we get done with this, which I hope will be done within, say, two months or so, is operate a service for people who have money and want to figure out where to invest it, who have money and also want to figure out what good charities to give the money to or to, to support, and for people who are interested in reconsidering the history of America in context. That's what I want to spend my time doing. You know, charity is is a very, I think it's a wonderful thing. It should be encouraged. Uh, it's supposed to be nonpartisan. Um, so it shouldn't be all that controversial, uh, you know, to, uh, to find truly impactful in a positive way charities. That's a good thing to do. I would and think so that's what I want to knowledgeable charity, charity people around now. Well, and so, so that's what I want to spend my time doing going forward. I don't want to work, I haven't worked for anybody else since 1994, and I'm not going to start now. Right. <laughs> you know, so I, I, I would like to keep doing this. And, you know, when I saw this in 2015 by March, you know, I told people that Hillary Clinton and the Clintons are not going to win the election. I reached out to the prominent Democrats. I reached out to the money man behind Bernie Sanders. And I gave him my work last year. And I said, listen, you know, you've got to go into this. I mean, it is a very dangerous, I mean, far be it from me to give advice to the Democratic Party, but I, I did. I reached out to him and a number of other, I won't name their names, but they, you can take it that they're very prominent people. And I said, listen, you know, what America needs in 2016, in my opinion, is something similar to the Lincoln-Douglas debate of 1860, you know, where we, or whenever it was, where we had you know, opposing points of view by very knowledgeable people laid out in a real debate and counter-debate, you know, point-counterpoint style before people who had a thirst for this information, they considered it and they voted and we moved on. Now, we had a bloody contest as a result in this country and it was the worst ever, but we need such a debate in this country. We don't need platitudes. We don't need, you know, a reality TV star mouthing off. Um, just that. What we need is, you know, what are the principles that that, that Trump has, you know, that he, he's going to put forward? What does he want? What does the other side want? In Hillary, we have somebody who's AWOL. You know, where is she? You know, I, I, I don't get it. <laughs> I just don't understand why, you know, a presidential candidate would disappear 
um, other than perhaps, and God forbid, that she believes the election is going to be rigged in her favor, you know, just as the Democratic primary seems to have been. You know, that is not a result that I think we deserve as Americans in 2016. We don't we deserve a rigged election. Think how we act, how our secretaries of state under both administrations act when other countries rig their elections, right? We, we are all high and mighty about that. We send Jimmy Carter around to tell us whether or not an election's rigged. You know, yeah. we should not have rigged primaries in our country and rigged elections. And we should, but you know, let's let's understand. I mean, if people want to embrace a massive socialist state, you know, I will vote against that. In a, you know, in a period where where disruption is working everywhere else, I'm certainly going to vote against that. But if I lose, I'll accept the you know results and I'll move on. You know, let's let's have a real debate. Let's not let's not put up you know Donald Trump against somebody who who won't give us the Goldman Sachs transcripts, and they're not. He's not hiding them because they say great things, right? He's not hiding them because people in the audience are saying, you know, without you, we're never going to be able to make it. He's hiding it because it's incriminating. You know, we don't need somebody who is, you know, who's willing to support secret wars around the world. I don't think well, I we to, want I that, am I right? I have to ask, what are you doing in November? What did you do during you the primary, if you're, if you're willing to say, and what are you planning on doing in November? Well, you know, actually, um, I'm nonpartisan, so I don't, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to get involved endorsing either candidate. Uh, but and, and I make my mind up at the very, very end. I'm one of these, you know, unfortunately, my kids give me a hard time about it, but I, I'm not somebody who's an early voter or an early decider. I wait till the last, literally the last possible second to make up my mind. And I'll tell you, on Trump. You know, one of the things that does scare me, you know, I was a former advisor to very rich people buying and selling companies around the world. And when you get people like Trump, uh, one of the things that does concern me about him is, you know, I haven't yet seen evidence that he can delegate the way he's going to have to delegate to try to run the vast federal bureaucracy as president of the United States and lead the free world. You can't do that tweeting at night. You know, and uh, and just dealing with a few close aides, you've got to be able to really run an organization, and so that that is an anxiety I have. Uh, I will reveal, however, after the fact that in 2008 I could not vote for McCain. You know, I I I know about I don't know if you know about the Keating Five, but he was one of the people implicated in the 80s in the savings and loan scandal, and you know I just can't support that, and um, and I I didn't I didn't like what I'd seen in some of Obama's positions, so I couldn't vote for him either. So I'm not, you know, a reflexive party man. In my long life, I've given, I think, a, a total of $2,000 away to, to, to political causes, as far as I remember. I don't think I've given any more than that, which isn't gave, a lot. I gave $20 to Obama or $40 to Obama total, and I, and I maxed out the burning. There you go. Yeah. Well, you're, you're, you're richer than I am. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> I should not have maxed out for Bernie. That's for sure. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, it's it's. I mean, it's it's really interesting to talk to someone with such a different perspective to be able to identify with something so big. Um, you know, it's 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 again. I I can't say that they committed fraud and they they deserve to be in jail just simply because I just don't feel. 
I don't feel I have the right to say that, um, but clearly your all the evidence that you have accumulated and, and meticulously sourced and, and are going to be releasing over the next couple of months, I guess, um, at the very least show really, really serious concerns that deserve further investigation. And that's the same thing with uh, a lot of the uh, difficult things that happened during the primary. Uh, Election Justice USA and some other supplemental organizations released these things that, you know, does it say absolutely election fraud absolutely happened? Maybe not. But it certainly says there are really, really serious things that deserve further investigation. And one of the biggest frustrations for me is how the Democratic Party and Hillary Clinton don't even acknowledge the possibility of even the smallest controversial occurrence happening in, in during the primaries where Hillary Clinton will say just outright, the New York voters chose me without any semblance of the 127,000 people that were purged from the rolls and all of the, all of the difficulties that have been happening in state after state. And no, is it fraud? No, I can't say for sure it's fraud, but is it worth further investigation and just rubber stamping? Should you be rubber stamping that they're valid results? That's really hard to hear. That's really hard to hear. But now, it, uh, points. It's in my site, um, but but you know, the accountants actually write all kinds of funny memos on very dense topics. But one of them that they write literally is called "Considerations of Fraud in Financial Statement Reporting," and I have that that I uh, link to that document, excerpts of that document on my site, and you know. In the financial for-profit world, um, people have thought about, you know, what are the, because fraud is tough to detect. So what are some warning signs to look for? I don't know that there is such a document for political fraud. There should be. But when you think about what happened in Nevada and then in Williamsburg, you're talking about, I think, in, in Brooklyn um, and elsewhere with this Clinton campaign, uh, it sure looks like fraud to me. And the question I would ask is, you know, why are you putting up to this? I would, if I were a Democrat, I certainly wouldn't put up with this. I, well, there's no way. Me, me as a Bernie person. Yeah, I'm not asking you. I'm just saying why. Why are are Bernie supporters willingly going off into the night? I'd be furious. Oh, I would. Yeah, say I'd, I'd be furious. I'd be. I'd be. I'd be furious with Bernie. You know why? Why, why have to do this? It. Yeah, you know, exactly. I, I somewhat agree. I somewhat agree. He has also not acknowledged the fraud. Uh, and that that definitely is is confusing. Um, yeah. But yeah. yeah. And, and so what what you learn here is that the Clintons have access to a lot of money. You know, it's a trivial exercise. They let Charity Navigator into the Clinton Global Initiative, you know, foregoing a twenty thousand dollar charge as they do for most NGOs. Uh, and the Clinton Global Initiative, of course, being a fraud as well. It's not a charity. It's a it's a party. And there's no charitable purpose for the Clinton, you know, in the legal sense. There's no charitable purpose, and it was never authorized properly in 2005 when it started. But, you know, so you can easily, if you're an organization of 15 people calling down 1.5 million in total, an entity like the Clinton, you know, uh, criminal charity network can easily bribe you. They won't call it a bribe, but, you know, they have an audience with the president uh, or some top people. Yeah, you give them a featured position, a shout out at the Clinton Global Initiative. You get some more customers. You get some publicity. Right. You know, I mean, it's very—it's a, it's a bribe with multiple levels of indirection between the money and the favor. 
Right. And, and, you know, if that can happen with, with a charity, it can happen with a candidate for president. Right. You know, it can, it's very simple. I mean, it happened with Hillary. You know, candidates lose, they have to get their campaign debts paid off. How do you do that? The winning, you know, person directs the organization to, you know, send some money to the loser. That simple. You know, it's, I mean, <laughs> and it, there's a, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you a surprising question. Have you read Thomas Jefferson's only book? Have I read it? Yeah. I have not read it. All right. So for you and for your audience, I'm going to be so bold as to give you all an assignment. Thomas Jefferson, you know, you can dislike some of his life and, you know, what happened. But when you think about his life story, what he accomplished at different points in his life at a time where there was no electricity. So how did he write at night? You know, how did he find time to do everything that he did? In the, in the period between the Revolution and when the Constitution was adopted in 1989, uh, sorry, 1789, uh, Jefferson was asked to uh, fill out a questionnaire that um, the government of France sent to the new American government. It was then governed under the Articles of Confederation. So Jefferson fills this out, and it's a, the only book he ever wrote called Notes, uh, Notes on the State of Virginia, I think, or Notes on the Present State of Virginia, something like that. And it's available online. You can get it for free, actually, but you can buy a copy off Amazon or whatever. And it's really interesting because it talks about every, you know, every aspect of America then, you know, the land, the population, the vegetation, the political system, the history, this, the religion, everything. Really thoughtful stuff. And one, and he predicted the mess that we're in. And I think it's section 13 on religion. He said, and I don't have it in front of me, something like, we will grow lazy. As time passes, we will not, you know, appreciate the great gifts we've, we've been given and that the land will become corrupted. As he makes reference to a quote from Caesar, with money we will get men and with men we will get money. And he talks about, you know, the system becoming corrupt and more corrupt. And then he says, there will come a time when there will be a convulsion and the chains that, you know, are, are carrying us down will either be thrown off and, you know, we'll enter a new era where we'll be even better or we'll, you know, we'll basically disappear. And that's where I think we are now. We're in that convulsion. You know, on the right, we're questioning the established Republican Party. On the left, you're questioning the established Democratic Party. Around the world, people are questioning their leaders. In Brazil, they just, you know, they just uh, made an example of Dilma Rousseff in Brazil. You know, they removed her from the presidency. So in country after country, we're seeing the signs of a convulsion. And I just hope that we will, you know, throw these chains off and do what we can do now with the great tools that we have to make, first of all, lives in this country better. That's our first priority. And with that done, you know, we can see what we can do to help people around the world. Remind us us of the title of that book, please. Notes on the State of Virginia. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting book. Uh, I would say that the, the, I think that laziness has been forcibly injected on a lot of the public, which I think is an explanation of why a lot of people believe mainstream media and choose uh, identity politics over substance, which is why Hillary yeah, Clinton won a lot that she did and Deborah Wasserman Schultz won her primary, right. is because the people are stuck watching what they think is the news, what's called the news. And I never came to this realization until the first 
the, the coverage of the first Democratic debate, where it just had this what seemingly pre-made article of Hillary Clinton dominates on the front of CNN, where it just overwhelms you with this, I, I don't know how else to say it except for um, propaganda, Exactly. And it, it, it forces, almost forces a laziness upon you if, if, and when you make the assumption that that is the truth. And I think that, yeah. Well, I thank you for reaching out to me, Jeff. I've just checked the time, and I've got, I've got I don't have much more time I can spend right now. Yeah, no, but we've been I, going uh, for a good hour, and I'm really grateful for, uh, for speaking with me. Anytime, Jeff. Thanks so much, and thanks again to Kitty for um, introducing us both. I wish you every continued success. Please send me a link, and I'll send it around to my followers.